All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word and begin to study it this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful to be here today to have the light of your word focused upon our thinking, focused upon our lives, challenging us in terms of our day-to-day walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's through your word that we come to understand who you are, who we are, and your perfect plan of salvation that crystallized in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because of who he is as described in Scripture that we know that we have eternal life when we believe in him and him alone for our salvation. Now, Father, today as we study your word and as we come to this remarkable passage related to the deity, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his mission in the first advent to provide for our salvation, we pray that you will help us to understand this, that we might have a greater, fuller, more accurate understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and we're studying the first eight verses of the chapter. And as I pointed last time, pointed out last time, this is an episode in the life of the Lord that gives us an understanding of who He is and and. and focuses us, gives us a foretaste of the Lord in his glory, understanding that he is both fully God and fully man. Now, as we sort of orient ourselves again to this particular section of Scripture, uh, what we're going to see is that, that Jesus has been identified rightly by Peter as the Messiah. When Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this is a critical focal point. But it started a little mini section here within this part of Matthew that is focusing on an understanding, a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission was at the first coming. Understanding that the cross, the suffering Messiah, was to precede the crown, the glorified Messiah. And so when Peter says this, he's focusing on his understanding of the Messiah, that the Messiah was uh, more than a prophet, that the Messiah was the son of the living God. And that is a significant term that often is not understood today. And it roughly can be understood as an idiom of description. It's a Hebrew idiom that if you were to talk about somebody's physical descent, of course, you would talk about someone 
for example, as Jesus as the son of Joseph. You might think of David as the son of Jesse. You might think of Eleazar as the son of Moses. But in many cases in the scripture, the phrase son of doesn't mean father to son as we normally think of it, but it means someone who shares the characteristics, the attributes, the qualities of something else. For example, someone who is foolish is described as the son of a fool. Someone who had committed murderer, murder would be described as the son of murder. Somebody who was corrupt and destructive and, and evil was called the son of Belial. And so this is how we must understand two of the key titles with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, doesn't mean that he derived his deity in some secondary sense from God, but that he is fully, total, totally God. He is undiminished deity. When the title Son of Man is given to Jesus, it is emphasizing the fact that he is full and true humanity. He is the God-man. And so last time I took the time to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 down through 10, focusing on an understanding of what uh, is described as the hypostatic union, that is the union of two, uh, two natures in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important to understand why I've entitled this lesson more than a prophet, because when what Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, means that he's more than a prophet. Jesus goes on to say that uh, in terms of uh, the, his uh, expanding the understanding of Peter, he tells the disciples and begins to show in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day, something they really didn't quite grasp yet, and they still didn't grasp after this. And even when it came the time for Jesus to go to the cross, they didn't quite comprehend uh, what was going on. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they began to put things together. So we move through this section, Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, which wasn't new. They had, as I pointed out, they had seen Jesus, understood he was the Messiah since almost the beginning. Andrew, when he's first introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist, ran to get his brother Peter, and he said, we have found the Messiah. But as the year, the last couple of years have gone by, their understanding and comprehension of what that meant became more and more focused. So the area where we're talking about geographically is to the north of the Sea of Galilee in this area of Caesarea Philippi, and this is where the conversation between Peter, between Jesus and Peter took place at the end of chapter 16. Then we're told at the beginning of chapter 17, after six days, Jesus uh, took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. So we raised the question as to just exactly uh, where it was that this took place. And I pointed out last time that the traditional site, or there's actually two or three, the traditional site is Mount Hermon, which is the highest, uh, highest mountain in uh, the northern part of, of Israel. It's right on the border with Syria. And it has a height of uh, 9,271 feet. 
there's another site that is sort of a secondary tradition, and that is the site of Mount Tavor. Now, that's been anglicized to Tabor, but for those of you who are shooting enthusiasts, there's a new weapon that came out three or four years ago that's an Israeli assault weapon called a Tavor. Same word. That's what it's named for. So if you hear about the Tavor, that's how it's pronounced. It's Mount Tavor. So this is what it looks like. It's an unusual, unusually shaped mountain, and it's not very far from Nazareth, but it would be a might be a little bit of a hike, but it's clearly doable to make it from the northern part of Israel, of, of Galilee, up by, um, up by uh, uh, Mount, Car- uh, Mount uh, Hermon and make it down here within, uh, within six days. So Jesus takes these three men who are the key, his key inner circle among the disciples, and he took them up onto uh, Mount Tabor and, uh, excuse me, uh, went up on the mountain. We're not sure which one it was. And there he was transfigured. And this passage tells us that it uses the word metamorpho, which means to change form. It's the same word that's used uh, of Christians, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So it re- reflects a transformation right before their face and says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now, it's interesting that Luke, in the passage I read during the scripture reading, omits this word. Mark uses the word, but Luke does not use the word, possibly because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, and this word had certain connotations to uh, pagan Gentiles that would have communicated something on the order of an epiphany, and it would have described some things that were related more to their pagan mythology And so instead, uh, Luke just says that he became as bright as a flash of lightning. Mark adds something interesting to this as well. He says he became white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. doesn't matter whether you're using Clorox or borax or what tide, super enhanced tide or whatever, doesn't get as bright as the righteousness, the holiness of God. When we see heavenly beings, whether they're angels, they're often portrayed as light and white, but so too we have with God. In Matthew 28, 3, we have a description of, uh, of the angel. His countenance was like lightning and clothing as white as snow. In Psalm 104, 2, we ha- and Daniel 7, 9, we have a description of God the Father as being white. And Daniel 7, 9 is a depiction of the Son of Man, the Messiah, coming before the throne of God the Father, called in this passage the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is described as one whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. Psalm 104, 2, David says that the Lord... O Lord, you cover yourself with light as with a garment. So if you're Jewish and you have this understanding of the Old Testament and you think of God as one who appears in a blinding light, then when Jesus appears like that, 
you recognize sort of a family relationship. It immediately connects you to the descriptions of God the Father. This is the same kind of thing that we see in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 14. When Jesus appeared to John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos, John describes him in quite striking terms and says that his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And so what John is doing in this description and the way Jesus revealed himself uh, to John is intentionally designed to connect the Jesus who appears to John in Revelation uh, chapter 1 to uh, God the Father, to make those connections indicating that Jesus is fully God. He has the full glory of the Father. As the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 1 that he is the, the effulgence or the radiance of, of, of his glory, of his essence. And so throughout the scriptures we see this emphasis that Jesus Christ is fully God. He doesn't have a secondary or derivative deity. When we look at Old Testament passages that predict the Messiah, there are two streams that we see. The first stream emphasizes the fact that the Messiah who's to come will be a divine Messiah. We have passages such as Micah 5.2. These are important passages to use if you're ever uh, witnessing to uh, especially an unsaved Jew, emphasizing that the Messiah was not just a human figure but a divine figure. Micah 5.2 says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, the one whose goings forth were from old. And the Hebrew indicates the one whose goings forth were from eternity. So the one who's born in Bethlehem, the one who's given birth to in Bethlehem, is not just a human being, which is indicated by the fact that he's born, but that he's one who has been going forth from eternity. He's also eternal. He would have pre-existed that birth, and he's eternal, and only God is eternal. Other passages, well-known passages, usually refer to at Christmas, Isaiah 7:14, that the virgin would give birth and would call her son Emmanuel, a word that means God with us. A clear indication that this child that's born, the fact that he's born indicates his humanity, but he's also called God with us. He's identified as God. And then just two chapters later in Isaiah 9.14, the one who is born is identified by a series of titles, one of which is a mighty God. And so we have a clear indication that the Messiah was to be fully God, not secondary, and I'll make this clear as we go along, not just secondary or derivative deity. The fact that he would be truly human is also indicated by a number of factors, the title Son of Man, that he's to be a descendant of David, he's called the Son of David, also, these passages that I've just mentioned in Isaiah 7:14 and 9:6, these are passages that indicate that he is—he's given birth to by a human mother, so he's fully human. And so I summarized it this way last time. For those of you who weren't here, this will be kind of fast, but these slides are on the internet. First of all, it, it, the scriptures indicate that there, there are two natures in Christ. Two distinct substances. That's why it's called the hypostatic union, the, from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning substance. 
One is human, one is divine. So he's fully human, and he's fully divine, and these two natures are combined in one person. And second point is, though these two natures are united in the person of Christ, they remain distinct. They are they don't merge or mix together. Now, what we learn is that Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, is eternally God. So when he entered into uh, the human race, when he comes in the process known as the incarnation, he does he adds humanity to his deity, and in that process, he willingly he willingly restricts the use of his divine attributes in order to accomplish the task that God has set before him, which is to go to the cross and to die for our sins. There are times when his deity is on display, when he changes the water into wine, when he shouts, peace be still, and the waves uh, quieten down, when he is walking on the water, demonstrating his omnipotent characteristics. But when Jesus is leading his everyday life, when he is facing the fact that he lives under uh, ungodly authorities in the Roman Empire, when he's having to deal with the religious authorities of the, of the Jews, when he is living in the devil's world, when he has to deal with temptation uh, from the devil in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't handle those problems, those difficulties or challenges by relying on his own deity. He handles them by relying upon his, the power that God's given him through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as a human being. If Jesus handled all those problems by using his divine power, then there's no example for us at all. But he handled it just as we would to set an example for us so that he faced and handled those problems on the same resources that you and I have, and that is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We learn that uh, there's no transfer of the attributes of one nature to the other. He doesn't, uh, th- there's, there's a firewall, as it were, between his humanity and his deity so that he can uh, completely limit the use of his deity and only access it at times for, to demonstrate who he is as the eternal Son of God. It's a personal union. He is a person, and this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who does everything. Sometimes people, in struggling to understand this, will say, well, Jesus did that uh, out of his deity, as if he's two persons. That's not the best way to put it. The one person performed the miracle. The miracle may indicate his deity. He hungered, he thirsted, he wept. That indicates that he was human, but the one person, the God-man, hungered, wept, thirsted. So there's only one person, and that this union is eternal. Millions of years from now, he will still be the God-man. That limitation has permanently attached itself to his deity, but in his deity, he is still eternal. Now, when you can figure that out, you let me know. So while they're on the mountain... Um, Matthew tells us that two Old Testament prophets appeared to Jesus on the mountain, these two witnesses. The Old Testament emphasizes that something must be validated, verified on the basis of two witnesses, 
And so these two witnesses appeared. Jesus has unveiled his glory, and he has revealed to them who he is as the uh, future messianic king, the king of glory. They see his deity, and then it is attested to by Moses and Elijah who appear to him, to them. Now, why these two? Why Moses and why Elijah? And what we see in this is something that I emphasize again and again is the Bible is an integrated book. Everything in the Bible fits together. And so often uh, the way people approach the Bible is to read this little section or that little section in isolation from its immediate context or the overall context of the Scripture. But the Bible, though it has 40 or more human authors, it has one divine author who is breathing out the Word of God through the writers of Scripture. So there is an integral unity within the Scripture. So anytime we read one part of the Scripture, we ought to ask, why is this here, and what is being emphasized, and how does this relate to the rest of Scripture? Because it's one integrated whole. And so when we look at the fact that Moses and Elijah are appearing here, we should... Uh, and it's in a sense, say, well, why didn't Enoch show up? Enoch didn't die in the Old Testament. Remember, Enoch walked with the with the Lord before the flood, and one day he's walking off with the Lord and just kept right on going on into heaven. He never died physically. Moses, I mean, excuse me, Elijah didn't die physically. Remember, the Lord set a fiery chariot that took him directly to heaven. Now, nobody witnessed Moses' death. He, he went up on Mount Nebo, and but we're told that that the, the that there was a fight between Michael and Lucifer for his body. So he did die up there. He didn't just get translated directly into heaven, like Enoch or Elijah. So why not someone else? Why not Samuel? Uh, why not David? Why these two? And there's a couple of reasons for. Uh, why these two. The first is, let's just look at Moses. Moses is the lawgiver, but Moses was more than a lawgiver. He's more than their deliverer who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He is also a prophet. He was a, 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 a unique prophet indicated by Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 18 to 19 where in uh, addressing the Israelites before they went into the land, he said, there will come a prophet after me, one that is like me. Now, he was unique in in a number of ways, and the grammar of that passage actually indicates that, that he's talking about a specific individual. It is understood in the New Testament, as we'll see, to be a, a messianic prophecy and talking about the Messiah as this unique uh, as this unique prophet. And this is how they, they understood this. They say Moses and Elijah uh, had appeared to him, and, and often these were associated. In John 1.21, John the Baptist had been baptizing down by the Jordan, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem found out. And so according to... Uh, their procedures, if anybody seemed to indicate that they were the Messiah or have 
anything special happening, any special miracles or anything, then they would go and investigate. So they would send out an initial investigative team. And so they went out to ask John if he was who he was. Was he, they said, first of all, they said, are you Elijah? The reason they mention Elijah, and the region Elijah is mentioned and appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, is because Malachi 4 said that that, Mal, that, uh, that Elijah would appear as a forerunner to the Messiah, that he would appear before the kingdom. And so they say, well, are you Elijah? And then they, he said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, are you the prophet? See, they understood that Deuteronomy 18.15 was talking about a unique prophet. It wasn't fulfilled by Joshua or Samuel or Nathan or Gad or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any other prophet in the Old Testament, that this prophet from Deuteronomy 18.15 was a reference to the Messiah. So they understood enough about the Old Testament to recognize that they were looking for this unique prophet, and that's the Messiah. And, he, and of course, John said he wasn't that prophet. Later in John 6.14, as Jesus had been ministering and he uh, performed miracles, the distribution of the bread. These men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So again, they understand Deuteronomy 18.15 is talking about the Messiah as a unique prophet. In John 7.40, the crowd also, having heard him, said, truly, this is the prophet. In other words, the Old Testament saints knew that they were looking for this unique prophet, and they were saved because they believed that God would send this prophet, the Messiah. So there was more content to their understanding of the gospel in the Old Testament than just simply that God would save them. They understood that God would save them through a specific individual who would provide redemption for their sins, and this was the messianic prophet. Passages in the New Testament, like Acts 3.22 and 23, where Peter is speaking and says, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Hear him. Uh, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And in Acts 7.37, Stephen as he is speaking to the religious leaders and confronting them just before they got mad at him and stoned him, uh, they said, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. So Peter and Stephen are both identifying this prophet as Jesus. And so this is reason Moses shows up. Moses stands for that. Moses also stands for the first section of the Old Testament known as the law. Now, Elijah's mentioned, as I said earlier, because Elijah is associated with the often the second section of the Old Testament, the prophets. There are three divisions in the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And often it was just simply referred to as the law and the prophets, and that would cover the entirety of the Old Testament. And so Elijah is one of the foremost uh, prophets. He founded a school of prophets, and he is the one about whom Malachi prophesied that he would appear before the coming of the great day of the Lord. But as we look at Scripture 2 again and again, we see this reference to Moses, 
and the prophets, Elijah, Luke 24, 27, when, when Jesus is talking to the men on the road to Emmaus, he goes through Moses and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, to show how all the scriptures prophesied concerning him. In John 1, 45, when Jesus is first appearing on the scene after he's baptized by John the Baptist, uh, Philip witnessed that, and he went to find Nathanael, and he said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he's identifying Jesus as the Messiah. In John uh, 4, 5.46, Jesus said to the Pharisees, If you believed if you believed Moses. So Moses and Elijah are the individuals who represent the totality of what was taught about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, as we think about this, look at the parallel passage in Luke. Luke adds a few details about Moses and Elijah that are not mentioned by Matthew or Mark. Now, what happens apparently in terms of what the chronology up there is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of the mountain. Then Jesus reveals who he is in the transfiguration. And then um, Moses and Elijah appear, and they are having a conversation with Jesus. Now, that's left out of Matthew and Mark. But Luke tells us that they're having a conversation and that they appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Now, that's really not the best word to translate it, probably departure, but that could include his death. Spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. So they, they seem kind of drowsy with the whole scenario. So this indicates they're in sort of a vision state, perhaps, and when they were fully awake, though, they saw his glory. So some people think that they were heavy with sleep, that that means that they were in this vision trance, and I'm not sure that's right. I don't see this kind of ecstatic thing going on in the Scripture. The second clause, when they were fully awake, is when they have their conversation, when they see what's going on. This is like the situation in... Um, uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they seem to be under a, a certain amount of emotional pressure. And I don't know if, if it's you've ever experienced this, but I know sometimes when, when I get have been under adversity, I just get real sleepy. You just want to go to sleep. And I think that's what's happened with them. They're under this, this totally different scenario there, and because of the way their their emotions and makeup are, they, they just they they just have a hard time staying awake, and we've seen this we see this a couple of times in their in, in their life. Now, the word that is translated "decease" is the word "exodus" from the compound of "ex" meaning to out or from, and the word "hados," which means a path or a way, and so it literally means a departure. But it's used a few times to refer to a departure from this life. So it has that sense of death. And one place that it does that, hold your place here in Matthew, and turn with me to Second Peter. Those of you who've been coming on, on uh, Thursday nights, you just have to go one book past First Peter and you're there. And this is a fascinating little passage. First of all, because Peter 
is using this same word, and it's indicated, it indicates physical death. And this is in, look at verse 13 through 15. Peter says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, referring to his physical body, to stir you up by reminding you. See, part of the role of a pastor is to challenge people to motivate them to get into the Word and to obey the Word, to study the Word and to obey it, not just uh, get so busy in life that the Word of God becomes uh, left behind. So he says that I, I'm stirring you up by way of reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So he's referring there to the the uh, death of the Lord and then his resurrection body. And then he says in verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now that's the New King James Version. But in context, that's what he means by his departure. He means by his by his physical death. So the word can can clearly have that that sense. Now what's interesting is let's read the next three verses. See, he just uses this word that's not used that much of death in the script. It's only used about four or five times in the in the uh, old, in the New Testament anyway. And then he goes right in in verse sixteen to talk about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, when did that happen? That happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. That happens in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 and Mark 9. said, uh, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. And we heard his voice, he says, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So this made an impact on Peter, and he refers to it, refers back to it uh, in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. So... There's this conversation that goes on between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know the whole conversation? It, it seems to be a discussion related to his fulfillment of his mission to go to the cross because they're talking about his death. They're talking about the fact that he will die. So again, this message that Jesus had given to the disciples in 1621 that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things and be killed, which didn't find a receptive audience among the disciples, is a message that they are confirming. And again, Peter and James and John, at least Peter, doesn't really quite warm up to that message. He, it's not something he wants to, to hear, but this is necessary because the mission of Jesus at the first advent was to pay for our sins. He was to come. He was to die as our substitute. He was depicted through various examples and types and shadows in the Old Testament as the one who would do this. He was the perfect sacrifice as depicted by uh, the Lamb. John the Baptist said he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So the picture of that sacrificial Lamb from the Passover was a picture of a Lamb that was, quote, sinless, without spot or blemish. 
There was no fault found in the lamb, and so that qualified the lamb to be a sacrifice, just as Jesus was examined, and there was no sin found in him, and so that he would then be qualified to go to the cross. And what uh, uh, this is emphasizing is that his, his death was absolutely necessary and required uh, to go to the cross. And so Elijah and, Masa- and uh, Elijah and Moses are talking to him about the completion of the plan of salvation. The Old Testament, they were, they were saved, as it were, sort of on credit. They were saved by believing the promise that the sin would be paid for, but it wasn't paid for until Jesus died on the cross. They were saved, but on the basis of a promise of a future redemption. When that was accomplished, remember in the Old Testament, they didn't go directly to heaven. They went to paradise. When Jesus paid the penalty for sin, in those three days between his death and his resurrection, he announced the accomplishment of the payment for sin in Hades, that is, in uh, paradise. And Scripture says he took captivity captive. That is, he took those who were the Old Testament saints, and he took paradise to heaven. And so it was only after he had finished uh, paying the penalty on the cross that, that they were saved. So they're having this discussion, and uh, Peter and James and John uh, are listening in, but they don't catch everything. They saw his glory. They saw the two men with him. And Peter's just impressed with the persons that are there. And he's also impressed with the fact that that this is really good. We're with the Lord. He's glorified. This is a great environment. Let's just stay here, Lord. Let's not go back into the devil's world. Let's not climb back down the mountain. Let's not worry about dealing with all the things. And the last thing we need to deal with is the fact that you're going to get arrested and you're going to die. We don't want that to happen. He says, let's just stay here. He says, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's not go anywhere else. It's good to be here and... We'll stay here, and that way we don't have to deal with anything else. In fact, I will build three tabernacles. Three, basically, it would be like a lean-to, some little uh, shelter, and we can just stay here and not go back into the world. And the word that he uses for ta- that's translated tabernacles is the Greek word skene, which is originally an, a Hebrew word. And it's one of those words I like to go to like amen. You find a a cognate of amen in almost every language in the world, which does seem to suggest that maybe the original language was an early form of Hebrew. Same thing with skene. Skene in the Hebrew form is shekinah, which is the word we use when we talk about the glory of the Lord, the shekinah glory. But the word shekinah means to dwell, to abide. And so the glory of God, when it abided in the tabernacle, was called the Shekinah glory. Now that word, you find cognate of that word in a lot of different languages. You find it in Russian, you find it in Greek, you find it in, in many different uh, other languages. So he says, Let's make, let me make three dwelling places for you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now what's the problem? The problem is that that Peter is is speaking out of turn and he's equating Jesus with two prophets. He's treating Jesus as if he's just another prophet 
like Moses and Elijah. And so God the Father is going to immediately interrupt him and say, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We'll get to that in just a minute, but there's a correction there. Peter, keep your mouth shut for a little while and pay attention. Uh, listen to my son. And so the Lord is correcting him, but I want to stop a minute and talk about this because this is a common mistake, that people want to treat Jesus like another prophet. This is the, one of the errors of Islam. It's terribly politically incorrect to say anything negative about Islam. Who would have figured that out 15 years ago after 9-11 that we would be in a place where if somebody said something negative about Islam that, that they would get in trouble? And then, of course, the great irony is that, that there was this incident the other day where somebody was questioning uh, Donald Trump and uh, uh, made the statement that the president was probably a Muslim and Trump didn't correct him. Now, on the one hand, we have a media that wants to make being a Muslim uh, not a bad thing at all. So why is it that if you infer that the president's a Muslim, that that's a bad thing? Just one of these things that doesn't make sense today. And by the way, we had this incident this last week that happened up in Irving with this young boy at MacArthur High School. When I was in seminary, I used to uh, substitute teach at MacArthur High School and lived around the corner from there, so I'm fairly familiar with uh, the city of Irving. But he had brought, and this was, it turns out this wasn't, according to a report I read, this wasn't the first time he had brought some sort of very complicated technical device that looked like it could have something to do with a bomb, but it didn't. This was the third time, I believe, this article said that he had done something like that, and it was designed to provoke a situation. It turns out that the family is backed by CARE, the, the Center for Arab... Uh, uh, what is it, Arab or American Islamic Relations, which is a front for uh, various uh, uh, terrorist organizations. They've been found to have funneled money to terrorist organizations, and they're always out there doing these things. And what's happened in the politics, you got to understand the city politics in Irving, is that they have a mayor who has prohibited uh, a, the development of a local Islamic council. The problem with these Local Islamic councils in other parts of the country is they eventually develop. It's the camel's nose getting under the tent, and they eventually uh, develop into uh, a system where Sharia law is introduced into the into the area. So the mayor in Irving has taken a very strong stand against this, and so Care decided that they wanted to generate a circumstance to have a very sympathetic. Uh, Per, uh, a Muslim uh, get uh, become the, res, the, uh, the 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 victim of prejudice, and then they could exploit this, and it worked better than they could have imagined. And you have the president inviting this young man to the White House, and and all of these other things. But r get out on the internet, look for the other reports that that this is something that is that it, that is tragic. It's terrible because if you can't say anything today negative about uh, Islam, well. Hope that doesn't bother you because I'm going to say something negative about Islam this morning. In Islam, they want to portray Jesus as another prophet. He's just another prophet. In fact, um, uh, in Islam, you have to understand Jesus can't be God because Allah is a 
Unitarian deity. He is a singularity. There's no uh, multiplicity of person in Allah. Uh, in the Quran, Jesus is actually mentioned more than Muhammad, and he's considered to be a prophet in the line of the prophets, although that's not stated anywhere in the Quran either. That's in some of their other books. They clearly reject the Christian view as Jesus as the eternal second person of the Trinity. And so they can't be saved because they don't have a Savior to pay for their sins, and they're trying to all work their way to heaven. The same thing occurs in Mormonism. In fact, yesterday I had an email from someone asking me a question, gave me a long email that was a copy off of a, of a Mormon site dealing with the person of Jesus. And you have to understand what you're looking at and think your way through this. But uh, Mormons want to claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now, Muslims won't say that. But Mormons will say, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. He was born of a virgin, all of these other things, it sounds good, but it's what they're not saying, and you have to remember what they're not saying. Uh, for them, Son of God doesn't mean he is equal to God and has eternal deity. Remember, Jesus is generated or given birth to by God the Father. There's a lot of uh, deities in Mormonism. One of their little sayings is, as, uh, um, as you are, God was. As God is, you will be. In other words, we can all become gods. God, the Father in Mormonism, once was a human. And then he was elevated to deity. And he had two sons. Gave birth, as he was married, many wives, gave birth to two sons. What were their names? Jesus and Lucifer. So the Jesus in Mormonism is not the Jesus of the Bible at all. He has derivative deity. This is like what you have in Jehovah's Witnesses or the ancient heresy of Arianism. You can't say Jesus is just a prophet because the Bible doesn't say that. When it talks about him as a prophet, he's this unique prophet that is mentioned by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is what Peter is recognizing in his statement in Matthew 16. You are the Messiah. The Messiah is equated to the Son of the living God. That means he is eternal. He is full, undiminished deity. And so the concept of the Messiah was that he's a prophet, and he is undiminished deity. So he is unique and he is distinct. Now, while Peter's talking, when he says, Lord, let me build you three lean-tos and we can just stay up here, he's immediately interrupted by God the Father. While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, many times in the scripture you see uh, clouds associated with the presence of God. You go back to the uh, tabernacle. When the Shekinah, when the presence of God inhabited the Holy of Holies, a cloud descended upon the Holy of Holies. Same thing occurred in the, in the temple. When the Israelites were taken through the wilderness, it's through a, uh, a cloud by day, a pillar of cloud by day, and fire at night. And so this cloud is associated with the presence of God. So this bright cloud overshadows them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, there are three things that are said here in, in this passage. This is my beloved Son, and that comes from Psalm 2-7. 
in whom I am well pleased, and that's a quote from Isaiah 42.1, and listen to him is a quote from Deuteronomy 18.15 and following the passage I've, I've been referring to. So let's look at these very briefly. If you have time, turn in your Bibles quickly to Psalm 2. This is a messianic psalm. The whole psalm is messianic, it's prophetic, and it refers to what will take place at the end of the campaign of Armageddon. And it is describing the final victory of the Messiah over the kings of the earth. And so the first part of this psalm, you have a conversation uh, that takes place between God and his Messiah. The setup, the setting is... Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? In verse 1, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's God the Father, and his anointed, that's God the Son, the Messiah. And what the kings of the earth are saying is let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Notice God's totally uh, incorrect, politically incorrect response. It is politically incorrect to laugh or scoff or show scorn for someone else's religion in our modern PC world. God is not bound by PC. God laughs. He shows scorn for them. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. And he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Then in verse 7, he says, I will declare the decree. This is the Messiah now speaking. He says, it's God the Father in verse 6, and it's the Son in verse 7. You might want to mark that in your margins. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this has been picked up by New Testament writers and applied to the resurrection. The crucifixion was one of the most horrific executions in the ancient world for rebels and criminals. And no uh, Jewish religious leader could ever think that uh, that the Messiah could ever go through such an ignominious death. And so basically what happens is that in Acts 13, in Romans 1, 4, We are told that the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus, and with the resurrection, he is declared by God's power to be the Son of God. Now, he's always been the Son of God, but he is declared with power to have always been the Son of God at the resurrection. So, Jesus, when the Father says, uh, Behold, my Son, this is my Son, he is quoting from Psalm 2-7. In Isaiah 42.1, in the middle of the messianic prophetic section of Isaiah, focusing on the servant of God as the Messiah, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my choice one. This is that Hebrew word bachar, which means choice, a choice one. It doesn't mean a chosen one because Jesus... God isn't choosing Jesus from among many. It's talking about the quality of who he is, that the Father delights in him because of who he is. So the Father says, he's my choice one. So when the Father says, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, 
He's connecting Psalm 2-7 to Isaiah 42-1. And then the last line comes from the end of Deuteronomy 18-15. This is Moses' prediction that the Lord your God will raise you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Listen to him. Him you shall hear. So when the Father speaks, he did. that's the one thing he didn't say in Matthew 3. Matthew 3, at Jesus' baptism, he said, what? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He adds, listen to him here. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 18.15, ties all of these things together for us, showing that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is this messianic son of God who has come to redeem us from our sins. And then what happens as they hear the sound of God's voice, they immediately fall on their faces. This typically happens in Scripture. Isaiah fell on his face and said, Oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, when he's brought before the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, uh, all fall on their face when they are presented with a uh, theophany of God. John, the apostle on the Mount on uh, the Isle of uh, Patmos, falls on his face when Jesus appeared to him. Uh, this is what happens to the disciples when unrighteous men are confronted with the holiness of God. They do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They want to run in fear. And what does God do? He reaches out for us in grace. This is exactly what happens with Jesus in Matthew 17, 7. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. It's interesting. The first thing that's said in the Gospel of Luke is when uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, goes in to serve in the Holy of Holies, and the angel Gabriel is there and and. Zechariah is just struck with fear being in the presence of a holy angel. And the first thing that Gabriel says is, don't be afraid. That's the grace of God. When Jesus came at the first first advent, he didn't come to judge, according to John 3.17. He came in order to pay for our sins. He did not come to condemn us, but to pay for our sins. That's the grace of God. And that's the emphasis today is in the gospel is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that by faith alone in Christ alone, we can have salvation. But one day is coming when Jesus is going to come uh, clothed in white light in the garb of a judge. That's the depiction in Romans 1, I mean, in Revelation 116, he will come to destroy the armies of the earth and to establish a rule of iron, and at that point there will be judgment. So the issue today is to be prepared for that, and the only way to be prepared for that is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The episode ends in verse 8, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. We'll come back next time and look at verse 9, because I think it connects us and gives us a transition into the next little section, and we'll look at that as we come to understand what, how this all fits with Jesus training the disciples and preparing them for his death. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to study your word this morning and to reflect upon uh, your provision of a perfect Savior, that this plan was established in eternity past and that it was promised and prophesied throughout the Old Testament 
and it came to fulfillment in precise detail as we see in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels. That Jesus, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, entered into human history by adding humanity to his deity so that he could be fully human and, as true humanity, die on the cross as our substitute, pay our penalty. He had to become a man, a human being, to die for human beings. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty so that you would not. All that is necessary, the scripture says, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not based on works. It's not based on effort. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on morality. It's based on one and only one thing, trust in Jesus Christ and the fact that we are saved not on the basis of our righteousness, but on his righteousness that is given to us freely on the basis of faith in faith in him. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. May we come to a fuller and greater appreciation of who our wonderful Lord is, that we may be able to explain him more accurately to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.